series in the Song of Solomon, um, there was a question that occurred to me. What am I waiting for? It's a question I'd like to ask all of you this morning. What are you waiting for? Let me, let me put it a little differently so maybe you can understand what I'm asking better. What do you look forward to? What's on the horizon that you can't wait for it to come in your life? Many of us might have like little micro goals to bigger macro goals. Like little micro goals is, you know, I can't wait to see the new Avengers movie this weekend. That's what I'm looking forward to. It's almost out of the theaters, by the way. You better hurry up if you haven't seen it yet. But, but that's what I'm looking for. Maybe that's like a micro desire, right? Well, macro desire, I, I really want to get married. I want to be, become an orthodontist, right? Like you, you have these like larger visions for your life, sometimes small goals versus larger ones. So what are you looking forward to? What's the purpose of your life? What's the vision of your life? Why are you breathing air in your lungs? I want to talk about that because I think the Song of Solomon has everything to do with that. Uh, recently, I had a conversation about leadership in church. Um, I have some coaches. This is a new church, and we started through, um, through a network of like church planters, and they have coaches for us. They help us think through how to lead churches and how to be better at doing that. Um, so I, recently, I was having one of these conversations with one of my coaches, and he was telling me that there's a difference in leadership between lag goals and lead goals. Lag and lead goals, okay? Um, he defined this for me, and it was actually helpful. It's the first time I heard this language. A lag goal is more of like a big picture type of goal. It's, it's a distant sort of thing. So in church life, that, that might, we might have the lag goal of having a certain amount of first-time guests at church in one year. Right? We want new people to come. Right? Like, now, you can have, in these goals, you can have bad motivations or virtuous motivations. I could want more people to come here just because I have an ego. Right? And I want a larger church, and this is about me. But if I have virtuous goals, I want them to hear the love of Christ. I want people who don't know Jesus to hear the love of Christ. So that, that's that lag. We want new people to come. It might be we have a lag goal with our, that our members deal with. We, we make a budget. At the end of this year, we'll make a budget for 2020. Um, we're not, we, we're not mind read. We, we can't read the future. We don't know for certain that that's how much money will come in. But we, we have to plan. We have to be wise. And we have to base it on certain information that we have about our church already so that we know what we can do with that money and be good stewards of it, right? So there's a lag goal, right? It's big picture stuff. A lead goal deals with how you get there. It's how you live everyday life. With your, with your sort of vision in mind. It might include things like, if we're going to have new people here, I'm going to need to talk to new people. So I might have the lead goal of myself as a Christian leader to talk to 10 people I have never met in my life in one week. Right? Get their names. Pray for them. See, those are lead goals. See, that's how I live my life daily, and hopefully that will fuel the bigger picture stuff. Does that make sense? Um, Think of this in terms of health, okay? You might have um, a goal of losing some weight. Maybe you've, you know, marriage has been kind to you, right? And so you've gained some weight, and you want to lose some weight. So, you know, I'm going to lose, you know, I want to lose 50 pounds, and I'm going to try to lose 5 pounds a month, okay? There's your lag goals, right? Um, a lead, what, what, what might a lead goal mean? Well, it's how I lose, it's how, how do I do it? How do I live my life daily? Maybe i got to start eating less Snickers bars and Big Macs, 
right? I got to watch my calories. I got to maybe do some cardio every day. So I have these goals, things that I do every day to feed it. You with me? So let me ask again, what's your vision? What are you working toward? What are you waiting for? The way we live our life every day will prove that. We can say it's Jesus, but the way that we live our life every day will prove if it is. You see? It's a way that you can even do like a personal diagnostic of your own spiritual life. See, as Christians, we know we need to live for Jesus. It's very easy to say that. We've been taught that. But how, what do I think about? Why do I do what I do every day? You see, do I have lead goals every day to actually lead me to what is my goal of being a spiritually mature person? You see, so we could say, yeah, I want to be like Christ. I want to be more holy. I want to live for Jesus. But we don't think about him. We don't pray. We don't go to, we, we don't go to church all that much. We, we don't really read our Bibles all that much. We just think it'll just happen. And that I'll be some like Adonis of the spiritual life just by itself. Just because I know I should want that. You see, how you live your life will prove, how you live your life day to day will prove what your vision really is. You see? Does that make sense? <clears throat> I'm reminded of a famous play called Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. Um, some of you may or may not have heard of more philosophical types might have heard of Samuel Beckett. Um, he was an existential atheist. Um, so I won't even say what that means. Okay? It's too confusing. But it's, it, let's say this. It's negative and it's pessimistic. <laughs> right? It doesn't look, value life too much. So it pictures two people in this play sort of desperate to understand the meaning of life. They really want to know why they're on the earth. So they're waiting on this park bench under a tree for Goodell. They're waiting for this guy that they were told about, some mysterious ca character that we never meet, by the way, in the play, who supposedly has the answer. So they're waiting around for him to give them the answer, and they have all this sort of philosophical conversation while they're waiting. But he never comes. And at the very end of the play, some kind of people are walking by, <clears throat> and they ask them, what are you doing? Just like the play began, well, I'm waiting for Godot. See, the point is, that according to Beckett, life is meaningless. So even wanting to know the answer to that question is a waste of time. Sitting under that bench is foolish. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? We wait for Godot, who has this answer that is never going to come. Because there is no meaning to life, according to Samuel Beckett. In the 19th century... What stands sort of like in contrast to this idea um, that Beckett proposes is a woman named Lilius Trotter. Have you heard of her? Lilius Trotter, anybody? Heard the name? Just a couple people. Um, I had heard the name. I didn't know much about her. But she was believed, so she grew up in 19th century England, so the 1800s, and she was believed by leading artists of her day that she would grow to be the greatest artist on earth. She had this unbelievable potential as a young woman to paint. And the leading artists of England were saying that she, she has the potential to be, be the greatest living painter.
But one day, Trotter accepts Christ as her Lord and Savior, and she feels that he is calling her to be a missionary in North Africa, Algeria. So she leaves everything. She leaves her illustrious career, everything behind her, all of her potential. She leaves it behind, and she goes on the mission field. She doesn't know the language. She's fa- she, while she's there, she faces many hardships and sees little fruit. Not many people come to know Christ. It was so challenging on the mission field for her that she wrote in her journal, the light doesn't come, just a blind holding on to a dim Christ. I can barely see that he's there. I kind of see him. So some people might have suggested that she wasted her life. All that talent left behind to go on the mission field that produced little fruit. Yet she was faithful. She continued on. And later in in her journal, she wrote this. She said, take the hardest thing in your life. Let's take this advice from a woman who's been long gone for over a century and apply it to your life and your situation right now. Take the hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. And it's just there that he can bring your soul to blossom. Isn't that incredible? On her deathbed, it's reported that she began to see visions of heaven. And her friends and colleagues asked her many beautiful things. It's the title of this sermon this morning. What are you waiting for? What are you after? What's your vision? I hope, if you're a Christian, that it's many beautiful things. Let me explain to you what I think she meant, what the Song of Solomon points to. As Christians, if you've read the Bible, you know the end of the story, right? You, you can flip to the back of the book and see what happens, right? We're not waiting for Godot. We're not looking for an answer that will never come. We have it because the living God who created you has told us what it is. We're not waiting for some enigmatic being that's never going to show up for an answer to our purpose that will never come because God has shown us the last page of the book. He's shown us how the story ends. And honestly, how this story ends really is the beginning of a new one, isn't it? God has shown us the last page of your life and mine. Jesus reminded us of the coming beautiful things in the text that you had read to to us this morning. And he challenges us, like these virgins, to be ready for the bridegroom. What is so beautiful, what is our purpose, is that the bridegroom, if you have had faith in Jesus Christ, is coming for you to live with him forever in union with the God that created you. That is the beauty that is our divine right. Not because we've earned it, it, but because God through Christ has won it by grace through faith. Amen? That's the purpose of your life. It's not to get rich. It's not to get skinny. It's not to get strong. It's not to be married. It's not to have children. It's to be wed to the King of kings and Lord of lords, your creator, the divine love. 
So he challenges us. We see Christ challenges us in our text to be ready for this day when he comes. That's the challenge. But the, the hard part about that, we all know the hard part because the virgins told us what was difficult for them. In verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time coming. We're tired. He's been gone for so long. When will he be here? So they became drowsy and they fell asleep. When the groom arrives, the virgins that were ready entered their rests and the others were left outside. So this morning, I want to remind you, if you know Christ, of who you are and where you're headed, what God's promise to you is, and what should be the vision and purpose of our lives. It will help us know how to live each day. So we're going to look at three things. The love, the wait, and the beginning. The love, the wait, and the beginning. The Bible begins in Genesis with God's creating all things visible and visible and invisible. So we're going to talk about the love story that the Bible begins with. Our first point. At center stage in Genesis chapter 1 of his creation are man and woman united in the covenant of marriage. You see, if you read Genesis 1 through, two, 1 through 3, you'll know that right away God creates all things, and then he creates man and woman, and then he hooks them up. Right? They get married, and they enter into a covenant of marriage. All of the creation sort of points to that event, that singular event, God creating man and woman who are now in the covenant of marriage. <clears throat> So this center stage romance, this marriage, shows us that they are to love and serve each other, that these two lovers are meant to complete each other. They serve and fill the earth, right, that they were commanded to do those things. But most importantly, what we're told about the married couple is that they were created in the image of God. And that tells us that to be in the image of God means that God created humanity for the purpose of God wedding them. God being in covenant union with them, with his creation, with not all of creation, but with those who are made in his image, man and woman. You see, husband and wife married together are pointing us to the reality that God created us to be wed to him, to have a loving, intimate relationship with him. That's why God made you to love you, to know you, that you might love and know him in return. In that imitation, we see the central purpose for our existence. Because as Adam and Eve were one with each other, so are we called to be one with God himself. As their, rom their romance is a sample of a greater divine romance, which is your purpose for life to begin with, the shared love of God and humanity. The purpose of your life, friends, is to love God. That's why you're on this earth. That's why you're here. It's the story that runs through all the Bible. There's a, there's a Hebrew word, an Old Testament word, that's used over and over again, and it's hesed. Hesed is a word translated as God's covenantal, faithful love for his people. In other words, it's a love that is bound to his character. He loves us undeniably and unchangeably and perfectly because of who he is. 
How many people have gone through a relationship, please don't raise your hands, but he loves me, he loves me not. And sometimes I think that love and those initial moments were probably genuine, but we change, we get weird. We start wigging out. We change our minds, but God doesn't change his mind. He is unchangeable, immutable. He does not change. So when God declares his love for his people, it is a faithful love. It is a covenantal love. His eternal purpose is to create a people for himself to love and to cherish. Isn't that so much bigger than your marriage? Your marriage is important, but it's so much bigger than that. The scheme, the scope of it, it's so much wider than even being a parent or being a law, uh, uh, an orthodontist, right? Here we have our defined purpose. The, the meaning for our existence is wound up in a love relationship with the creator of all things living. According to one author, the Bible uses the image of marriage to describe our on-again, off-again relationship with the living God. God doesn't change his mind, but we do, don't we? We say, all right, God, you're cool, I love you, I'm going to follow you, and then we see a butterfly, and we start chasing it, right? So here, here introduces the problem. God created us for this purpose, but the problem is that rather than receiving his love advance to us, we share in Adam and Eve's sin, and we love everything but him. He's, uh, he's supposed to be up here that we love most, and everything that he's made we, we love sort of through him, but we've reversed it. We love the created thing more than the creator, and because of that, he gets second place always. Something always trumps. Art wins, and Algeria loses. You see? That's the problem. When we wait for something else, when we're looking towards anything but God, he's not enough for us. So we wait for Godot. We wait for an answer in God's creation that will never come when God holds out the answer to you every day. The message of the Bible is that we're sinners, but he died for us. But he died for us. God won us back. He found us in the field chasing the butterfly, and he brought us back to himself. That's what God did. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City. He once said that God has been trapped in the longest bad marriage in human history. <laughs> so you think you got it tough? Consider Israel. Consider the church, who the Bible says hoard themselves with many gods. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hosea, it says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute so that you will know what it's like for me to be married to Israel. Because they love everything but me. They serve every God. They pay no notice to me at all. So Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute just so that Israel will know what it's like for me. In spite of this, God wins us. He dies for us. What, what, what would we ask is God's vision? What's he after? What's he waiting for? What's he up to? And create a new star in some nebula? Oh, wow, look at that one's really blue. No, he's after you. 
He's after your heart. He created that star so that you would know he's there and that he loves you. Isn't that incredible? He's waiting for us. And if indeed you are his, he's waiting for you. He stands at the door and he knocks. Would you respond? If you have come to him by faith, you are his holy bride, those virgins waiting for the groom, ready, and at which we will finally hear, here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Come and meet him. You know that the Bible ends the way it begins? It begins with a wedding, and it ends with one. In Genesis chapter 1 through 2, God creates all things, and then he marries Adam and Eve to demonstrate to them them that he created them for the purpose of union with him. But Genesis 3, we funk it all up, right? And everything in between is God fixing the problem that we started with our rejection of his love offer. But at the very end, we see God has won, and there's another wedding. There is a vow renewal In Revelation chapter 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride is ready. Oh friend, if you have had faith in Christ, that is you. He has made you ready. What's your vision? The Song of Solomon is meant to show us why God made us, what he wants with us, and what we really should be waiting for. The king, mutual passion, affection, and holy desire. You know that his love can be received by faith. That you don't have to be outside the door. You don't have to be those virgins who were not ready. You can accept him by faith and be ready for him right now. And if you are a Christian, you've already done that and you've drifted. Well, the solution for you is the same. Renew your affection for him by faith. Trust in him afresh. And when he comes, he'll dry your tears, he'll resolve every heart's pain, and he will satisfy your every need. He will. Look to him for that. But here's the challenge, number two, the wait. We've got to wait for that. We're still waiting for the return of the king, as the Lord of the Rings so eloquently put it. And if you think that's about hobbits and gremlins, know that... Tolkien was writing a metaphor about God and Christ. We're still waiting for the king, and that wait can be difficult, can it? His proposal, potentially, if you know him, you have received him by faith. You have accepted his offer of forgiveness. You've opened the door, so to speak, to his invitation, but yet we wait. The wedding day hasn't happened yet. So Christians are sort of, in this life, in a long-distance relationship. Though the love and joy that we can um, exchange right now, it's real and it's brilliant, but we're still sort of left waiting for the completion of it. We see through a glass dimly, the Bible says, but then we'll see face to face. So there is an incompletion, even in the spiritual life, even though we can have great joy and great peace, there's still an incompletion. And add to that, that we retain the burden of dealing with our own sin and others in a broken world. But when that day comes, that will be settled once and for all. It seems so far away. We wonder if it will ever come. 
So we're tempted to live like the foolish virgins who just decide that they're going to stop preparing for it. And we fall asleep and we become drowsy. And in our wait for the king, tragically, the creation that was meant to point us to him becomes him. We start to love and worship the things he made more than him. The things that were supposed to remind us to wait for him become a substitute for him. Can I ask you a question? What potentially in your life have you traded for God? What is more important to you? The in-between, even when we're patient, even when we don't trade, can leave us still enduring the death and mourning and crying and pain of this life. In this life we suffer, don't we? We have conflicts, do we not? We, we get into fights. Sometimes we're not even in the wrong. People just get mad at us for no reason, sometimes even for doing good things. People we love never talk to us again. Things happen. Doesn't that stink? Isn't it awful? To, it's burdensome. It's hard. We lose and we fail. We live east of Eden, outside of paradise, where there is crying and mourning and all of these things. But knowing the end, friends, even in the wait, knowing the ends empowers us to live and to have hope and joy. And I think in three ways. Number one, you'll see on the screen, the presence of suffering should not surprise us. It's not proof, because you suffer, it is not proof that God has failed or changed his mind. Pain is an off script. Whoops, didn't see that one coming. Sin has brought suffering into this world, but Jesus will end it. He's even using it to lead you to himself, well, he'll dry every tear you ever cried. And secondly, this should empower us to persevere and give us courage while we're in the wait, while we're east of Eden, because it's a short time. You say, oh, no, it's not. It's long. The bridegroom is taking a long time. Well, listen to Scripture, what Scripture has to say about this. Jesus said to his enemies, he says in the Gospel of Luke, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's about to be crucified. He's about to be hung on a tree, tortured to death, mocked, spit on, beaten up. And he says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. You see, friends, life east of Eden is only an hour long. You say, well, my whole life, for 60, 70, 80, 90, 90 years, well, in comparison to eternity, the glory and the bliss and the paradise that you'll experience in perfect love union with your God, it is but an hour. It is a short time. You know that that's what's said about Satan? Satan's running amok. He's causing trouble. He's trying to kill you. And it says this in Revelation, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that he has but a short time. Time. he's got an hour to mess you up oh and that hour's tough and uh, in that hour he puts a lot of effort into you 
But friends, it's an hour. Wait, because the king is coming. Thirdly, we can have hope in the wait, because the in-between, the east of Eden, is still an engagement. Let me tell you what I mean by this. If you've ever been married, are married, or maybe one day will be married, you were likely engaged first, right? You didn't just show up at an altar, like, surprised one day. You, you weren't in your PJs, and you woke up in a tux, right? Do you, Kyle? You were engaged first. You likely knew the person first, even if it was from a distance. There's an engagement process. You know that engagement can come with a little frustration, especially if you're a Christian and you're trying to be pure. You can't touch yet, right? There's, there's still a distance from you, right? But in that distance, even though the relationship is still somewhat incomplete, it's hopeful, isn't it? You're excited. It's not miserable. That engagement can bring certain frust- frustration, But if you've ever been engaged, you'll know the happy anticipation, ideally, I know that this isn't everyone's story, but it's what it should be, right? There should be a happy anticipation. Your love even grows for each other. Isn't that true? Engagement is a time where love and romance can thrive and grow and not be in barren solitude, right? There does remain a certain tension because you're in between, you're waiting for something to be realized more fully, there's still a shared and mutual love that you can, be, you can experience with your fiancé. Isn't that true? And it's the same with Christ. Even though the wedding day hasn't come, Christ has not returned, we can send love letters to each other. We can look into each other's eyes. We can know him. We can hear his advance. We can live our lives for him. Engagement is a time where our love can grow, and that's our life. It's him that we trust, not to change his mind. He'll show up at the altar. We don't have to worry about that, because his dowry wasn't money. It was his blood. It was his life. That's what he bought us with. He endured death and hell to rescue you, so that that we would be guaranteed that on that day he would return to greet us with open arms. So friends, what are you waiting for? I hope it's the last chapter. I hope what you're waiting for is the beginning. Have you fallen asleep? Oh, friends, could I invite you to wake up? Because he's coming quickly. He's what we should have been waiting for all along. And number three, let's look at the beginning. The beginning is coming. You see, the end of the Bible is really the beginning. You know that if you're a Christian, elderly, that you're not old. Isn't that good news? Right? If you, if you just turn 60, or you're about to, and you're feeling a little old, you're not old. If you're 70, 80, 90, or whatever, and you think that you're old, well, friend, you're not. Because for the Christian, you don't get old. Christians don't get old. Christians that get old are really just at full gestation. gestation. They're full term. You're about to be born. You're about to get your real life. The life God really created for you that sin messed up. You see, friends, because when you breathe your last breath, you breathe your first. 
as a Christian. Isn't that great news? You think you're useless. Oh, my time is up. I, can't, I don't serve a purpose. I'm older. What, what, what good is it? What good is it? You are closer to life than I am. That's better than what I got. You say, oh, well, life is about life. That's, that's where we make the mistake. Oh, everything's past. I didn't accomplish all the things I wanted to. You see, that's where we need new glasses. We need new spectacles. Because, friends, what you really need to accomplish is what's waiting for you when he comes. Perfect love with your God and maker, Jesus Christ. Older Christians are at full gestation, full term. You're about to be born. You're about to begin life. When Christ comes and you see him face to face, you're going to be more alive there than you ever were here, more satisfied, more fulfilled, more loved, more purposed than you ever were. Isn't that good news? You'll get everything that you wanted here, but in its full. Death for the Christian is the last day of distance from God. Oh, praise God. That means that life for the Christian is like a rehearsal dinner. Right? We're all in the rehearsal dinner right now. Well, what's that? What's, the rehearsal dinner is the day before the wedding. It's the hour. It's the wait. It's the, it's the hours before the wedding, the day before, the night before. At the rehearsal dinner, we know tomorrow's the big day. It's coming. Your family and friends are there. They're gathering with you. And what are they doing for you? Well, they're getting you ready. They're clipping your toenails. Right? <laughs> they're waxing your arms. They're cutting your hair, right? Aren't they? They're, put, they're putting rings on your fingers and ears. They're doing your hair. Because tomorrow, you're getting married. You see, what are we doing here? What's life as a Christian? Well, we're doing each other's hair. We're getting each other ready. You see, figuratively, metaphorically, we're calling each other to holiness, to purity, to follow Jesus to remember that he's coming. We're cutting each other's fingernails. Do you realize that tomorrow the hour's going to be over and Jesus is going to be here for you? What's your vision? What are you waiting for? What are you getting ready for? I hope it's that, friend. I hope that you're making yourself ready because of this at any moment union, when Christ could return for us at any moment, either in our death or in his return. Either way, we're going to see him face to face. It's like that. The Christian life is like the rehearsal dinner. We're anticipating that tomorrow he's going to be here. And all of us are applauding the reality that tomorrow you will be married to God. Isn't that great? The day before your wedding, you know what? You're not thinking about your stocks, are you? Unless you're weird, right? Most of us, I think most people, the day before their wedding, they're not thinking about stocks. They're not thinking about their promotion at work. They're not thinking about how much money they have in their bank account. Um, they have a singular purpose. They're thinking about getting married. If, they, if the thoughts of those other things come to mind, for me and my experience, generally, I was thinking about them more thankfully that I can use those things to serve who will be my new wife. So I, I look at all of those things in the context of my new marriage. Isn't that true? I'm so glad that I have a job and a home. I'm so glad that I make money and I've saved some because now I can serve my, my wife and my new family with those things. You see what I'm talking about now? Life, 
friends is the rehearsal dinner. Everything that you have, your job, your intelligence, your gifts, your skills, now you can serve the king with those. I'm not suggesting that you abandon all those things, that you forget all the good things God has given you, but now you have new glasses on. You can see that all of that was meant to serve your new relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not about those things anymore. It's about how those things can serve him. Isn't that great? Oh, friends, he's coming. The wedding is almost here. The proudest dad ever will give you away to the son, to the bridegroom, the most worthy groom who moved heaven and earth and even died on a cross for his bride is going to be the one waiting for you. And the purest bride, made white as snow, not because you're good, but because he's good and he made you good. The purest bride will be presented to the greatest groom in the presence of the most perfect father. Isn't that good news? Let us rejoice and be glad. Give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Write this. Blessed are those invited to the wedding of the Lamb. Friends, what do you want? What do you really want? You, you know, just be honest about that question. And might, might I invite you to want something better? Bill Gaither, you guys know him? All right, yeah, I got one. All right. Bill Gaither wrote this. He was probably most popular in the 80s and 90s. He was a singer and songwriter. He wrote this. The timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to eternal hell. See all around now the nations bow down to sing. The only song is the praises to Christ the King. Slowly, the names from the book are read. I know the King, so there's no need, no need to dread. See, over there, there's a mansion, oh, that's prepared just for me, where I will live with my Savior eternally. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. Praises to the great I am, we will live in the life of the risen Lamb. Let's pray. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come get him. Oh, friend, if you don't know Christ, he's knocking. The cry is going out. Here's the bridegroom. Go get him. You make yourself ready by surrendering, turning from all other devotions and loves, trusting that Christ died for your sin on the cross. He paid it all so that you pay nothing. And he offers you salvation. Friend, would you come to him by faith? Would you make yourself ready for that return by faith? And he'll save you. He'll clothe you with righteous robes with perfect wedding clothes. 
If you don't know Christ and you're coming to faith in Christ, cry out to him right now, God save me. I'm a sinner. I've loved everything but you and Christ had died for me to solve that problem. All the anger that you had for my sin was put on Jesus instead of me so that you could put all your love on me. Justice has been served in Christ so that I can be loved forever. If you, if you um, sense your heart turning in faith to Christ, friend, you are saved. You are clothed with wedding clothes. Follow Christ. Come talk to me about your new faith. I would love to pray with you more. God, we ask that you would just bless the rest of our time together now as we share communion with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.